two, three. Welcome to... <laughs> yeah, we gotta do it at the same time, so we're just gonna stay recording. Welcome, Welcome to, to a Florida thing. thing. I am your host, Tyler, with my grandmother, Grammel. On today's episode, we're gonna be talking about Craig Pittman's new book, Cattail, The Wild Weird Battle to Save the Florida Panther. Which is all about one certain breed of cat, and they're vicious and ferocious, but at the end of the story, we're gonna probably have a different opinion of them. Then in the second segment, we're going to be playing a little bit of state animal trivia since the Florida panther is the state's animal. And then in the third segment, we're going to be chatting with Craig about his book, craft, Florida wisdom, interesting and unknown stories about our home state, and what it looks like for reporters during COVID. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to dress up and put on lipstick. So why don't you give us a quick synopsis about what the book is about? Panthers. (laughs) It's about panthers. Right, Florida panthers to be specific. Some of them have descended testicles. That don't descend. Amen. (laughs) But that's not a good thing for their... Yes, it's very, very important. It's very important that our audience realizes that that was really the reason for the book and the interest Mr. Pittman had in Panther is because their numbers were quickly descending, and it just had been that way for quite a while. He got interested in it, and I guess after 20 years or so of being interested in it, he finally got to write this book. He put a lot of love in it, and it's a good thing there's people like that care about because actually got to read the book because I can't give it away. Well, uh, Craig starts with the beginning of the Florida panther or the panther in Florida. And then he kind of follows how they were hunted and how those early folks were afraid of them and their role they played. And then because of all the hunting and other things, their numbers started to dwindle to almost extinction. I like the part that the children, the school children played in this about getting it to the front of the people of Florida where they know. That was a really important part because... I I think that, you know, that it was an interest to the children. There was a moment where the state was trying to decide what the state animal would be. And so they gave it to the school children to vote. And it was between a manatee an alligator, a panther. And something funky. Was it a deer? But to me, it was something like... There were like four choices. A turkey or something. Four so choices. you have to read it to find out. This isn't spoiling anything because the panther is the state. I almost just said state bird. It's the state animal. It's not a bird. It's a cat. See, you didn't know you didn't <laughs> know so much about a, a panther. Because it was chosen as the state animal, they wanted to then put a lot of research and conservation that it wouldn't go extinct because a lot of people really were using it as a mascot they were really identifying and if your state animal goes extinct that's not a great metaphor for your own state they were really really down to a handful of panthers at one point and so that really started their conservation efforts it's a very serious topic it's a very serious book i mean it goes through a lot of the reasons why things were becoming extinct guess why they were becoming extinct Guess what? The number one reason was. What? Well, you're a professor. You should know. Well, I read the book. I thought you were trying to set up a joke. What are you What are you talking about now? People. 
cars, four-wheel cars that were killing them. The people were intruding on their space. Right. So initially, back in the day, they were going extinct because people were hunting them. And then one of the main killers when we were trying to protect them was people hitting them with their cars. Which I found very poignant to the rest of the story. And this book is so full of characters. So many yes, characters. a lot of characters. But not like, oh, there's so, I'm not meaning there's so many characters you can't figure out who's who. I mean, just like people who are characters because they are so They care so eccentric. much. A lot of the characters become obsessed with panthers and they devote their whole lives to them. And I thought so much of the employees that cared and they would work tirelessly and I don't think they got paid for it because they worked way past five o'clock and they worked weekends and they just were very very dedicated and trying to save them and that became very heartfelt. There were times too I teared up about the whole thing. I think one of the most dedicated people was one of the trackers and his last name's McBride. I know. I could picture him. He, I'm a very merry widow that wants to remain a very merry widow. But he kind of made my uh, toes curl. Oh, he did then. something for you. Well, kind of. Just my toes would curl. He's a very like John Wayne kind of figure to me who tracks down big cats. But at the same time, he has a master's in, I think, biology or something like that. So he's very well-rounded. And he, you know, would just go after these cats and spend so much time tracking them that he became one of the best in the world for what he does. And then because... And he was very humble, and he cared a lot about the cats. And he was very into science, and he would not put up with BS if some of these developers and other people who had more nefarious interests were trying to do something. And because of his love, his sons, you know, love the animal. And then his grandson came along and loved the animals, too. Uh, It radiated from him. Well, and everyone would say he's a man of very few words, so people would just observe what he was doing. He was real good to his wife, real devoted to his wife, Yeah, which I think is very sexy. He seemed to be all-around good guy, Mm -hmm. from what I can tell. And he made me think more of that actor from Australia than John Wayne. Who? You know, the Chris one, Hemsworth? No, no, no. Back, you know, cro- Crocodile Dundee guy. Oh, okay. Because John Wayne was like me. He had some meat on his body. This guy was lean. In your mind? No, they said he was. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. I keep telling Tyler he'll be the de- best debater in uh, our family the minute I pass away. I know. I was just asking if that's how you envisioned him. No. I guess I skipped the part about what he's looking like. You're more interested in that. Yeah, I got him all. He's going to stay there for a while in my image, his images. Let me tell you, I love, hate politics. And there was a lot of politics in it. Good people, basically, and they were not politicians. And not so good people because they say love makes the world go round. I think it's money. Well, that's some people. definitely what this book was showing, because a lot of the reason was people wanted to develop land in Florida, and other folks are trying to protect the land for the panthers, and the other animals kind of depend on it in some kind of way at one point. Oh, yeah. When they killed something and it became a carcass, they ate what they wanted, and it took them a few days to do that. And then other critters, be them large and ones we think are cute, to ones we don't think are cute, 
and then it goes down to the insects. So, and then the remains actually goes into the ground, the soil, and enriches the soil. So now would you have believed all that? I think that's that was one of my favorite parts about the book is just all of these little details that you know you're learning while you're going throughout it's more like a narrative than anything else it's not like a science textbook or anything like that I think for me the facts were coming in a way that was really readable yes because I didn't think a whole book on panthers could say all that much Mr. Pittman in his own way is a comedian because I chuckled so much that my chuckler got sore and I think that's because he, he chooses really good details. Well, and you can see he makes word pictures and you can laugh over them. And it was funny. I got to where it didn't bother me that the panthers might eat somebody's poodle and, you know, might eat somebody's the pet. circle of life. Uh, pet. Not pigs, ostrich. What was it? And, and chickens. and Yeah. But after a while, it was like, well, that's. They needed something to eat. And we were rooting for the and Panthers. We were rooting for them. And, you know, life, what civilians wasn't, weren't being very good to them. Well, and it talks about development and the habitat and how certain people were on the land. Maybe they shouldn't have been, but people in the state and the politics, which we won't spoil. I didn't feel great about certain things after reading that. It really was only about three or four politicians that really cared for the sake of caring. I think that's even being generous. I can only think of, honestly, when, not One was not a woman and that was a senator. Oh, right. Yeah, probably being maybe one generous. Like I say, it was a story that the plot stayed the same, but all kind of things was going on in it. And I learned a lot. Oh, I like the way they're courting habits were quite cute but man i don't think y'all should do that especially biting on your partner's neck right okay well i think what i really have to say about this book is there's a lot of florida natural history in it but there's also a lot of drama so you're getting drama you're getting these facts about the state and the environment and i think that really kept things moving and i think i read the book in a day i did read the book in a day well, I found, now here I am, 77 years old, was born and raised here and lived here all my life. And there were so many parts of Florida I had never heard the names of. Even some of the lakes, I, and I had an Uncle Tommy that went fishing all the time in freshwater lakes. And the names of the towns and the counties, some of them I had just never heard of. So he put a lot of research in it. And I found that part very interesting to me. And I believe he was as uh, fearless as some of the characters who were actual real people. They were fearless, too. They, uh, not of the, you know, I'm not talking about being fearful of the Panthers, bureaucracy, their bosses, and that kind of stuff. Because he was and confronting then, certain folk. Yeah, y'all really need to read the book because it's very interesting. In the last segment, we talked about Craig's book, and now we're going to play a quick game of Animal State Trivia. Now, I did not tell Grimal we were going to be playing this game, so all the answers are right off the top of her head. Okay, doke. I'm pulling this information from the University of Florida's IFAS extension site, so we'll just go from there. So I'm pulling these facts. So what do you think Florida's state marine mammal is? I would say the manatee. 
because that's the one that we hear the most about in the papers of, that they needed help also through the years. Ding, ding, ding. Correct. Florida State Marine Mammal is the West Indian Manatee. The state legislator designated the West Indian Manatee as Florida's Marine Mammal in 1975. Despite the name, these manatees are native to Florida and portions of Central and South America. They can grow up to 13 feet long and weigh 3,000 pounds. They're heavy set and jolly. <laughs> they're so cute, the sea cows. Yes. I love manatees. Yeah, Have you ever seen one out and when you're swimming or anything like that? Not really, because, you know, it's kind of hard to swim in uh, fresh water anymore. I used to swim in fresh water back when I was growing up, too. I was a teenager and a young mom. I didn't even see alligators back then, much less a manatee. I don't think I'd even heard the word, except, you know, there's a county named Manatee County. Yeah, and so the manatees, their habitats can be rivers, canals, estuaries, and saltwater bays. And I definitely remember being at the beach while a pod of manatees swam by. In salt water? <laughs> cool. <laughs> that must have been an experience. It was. It was pretty great. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of salt water, what do you think is Florida State's saltwater mammal? And hence... Is it nice or not nice? It's Well, it can be nice, depending. But hint, it is also the mascot of a football team. Saltwater. It's a mammal? Yes. But some people might oh, think... Oh, a porpoise? Yes. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So it says, Florida designated the playful bottlenose dolphin as the state's saltwater mammal in 1975. They can grow up to be 6 to 9 feet and weigh 330 to 440 pounds. Now, I have seen them when I'm out in a boat or even in a restaurant that is out on the water. And they're just cute little show-offs because they want people to love them. Now, this next one is easy. If you get this one wrong, I'm going to be so sad. I want to embarrass him. What is Florida's state reptile? I'm going to say alligator. Yes. I was so... I knew you were going to get it right. See, he didn't give me homework and he didn't give me anything. These are all just off the top of your head. Yeah. So far, so good. Three out of three. (laughs) The American alligator was designated the state's reptile in 1987. That's the year you were born. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> exactly. So, I, you know, and I love alligator. I mean, I've done a lot of research on them, and I write about alligators in my book as well. I'm kind of obsessed with them. My friend Jessica's little dog, Olivia, has a stomach problem, and she eats alligator's meat. Where does she get the meat? And why does that help the stomach? I do not know. Um, and Jessica is really into her dog, so this must there must well, be a good reason. Uh, Violet used to be her service dog, and now she just, you know, is retired. And I don't know. It must be, I would say, easier to digest because Violet does have, like, she eats baby food vegetables. She'll really load up when baby food is on sale. Violet has, like, about seven or eight castles. That is her dog bed. She has a dog bed like in every room. And she's real pretty. She's copper copper color. And my Roxy and her are big friends. That's how we met. And she's a wonderful young lady. And she was in the service for years and retired. And 
She called me when all this pandemic started and said, Margie, I've been in North Carolina visiting my family, and she thought that she would like to buy my groceries for me during this pandemic. So I have two more for you. Oh, okay. What is Florida State Bird? I'm going to say the pink guys. The flamingos? Yeah. Good guess. And that makes sense because a lot of people associate Florida with the flamingos. Okay, my second guess is going to be eagles. It's actually the northern mockingbird. So the Why not the red-headed woodpecker? This bird was designated as Florida State Bird in 1927 and is also the state bird in four other states. A very popular bird. So we're mocking three other states (laughs) by having the mockingbird. I know. I do like mockingbirds. I see them out in the yard. But I do think a flamingo or a pelican, I would like it to be a brown pelican. A little bit something more dramatic. Yeah, a little different. Okay, and the last one I'm going to ask is not a state animal, but it's a state food. So what is the state pie? Key lime. Correct. Yay, my favorite. (laughs) Key lime pies are great. Of course, my favorite changes with whoever suggests the name of a pie. That becomes my favorite. For our final segment, we are going to talk with Craig. Now, I am going to drop us into the conversation, and here we go. We both have read the book, and we do have some questions, but if you could maybe just start by giving a little bit of background on your writing and maybe some of your other books that kind of brought you to this book. For about 20 years, I covered environmental issues for the Tampa Bay Times, Florida's largest newspaper. It used to be known as the St. Petersburg Times. I think it's the best job in American journalism because... Number one, they have to pay you to go out and ride around in a boat now and again. But number two, you get to write about some of the really wild, crazy stuff that goes on in Florida, like pythons battling alligators in the Everglades, the taxpayers footing the bill for the captive breeding of endangered rats at the Lowry Park Zoo, the religious group smuggling in giant African land snails from Africa because they think drinking the mucus makes them healthy. Uh, It has the opposite effect. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say, how's that working out for them? Yeah, no, it doesn't work. One of the ladies actually put the snails up under her dress and got on a plane in Nigeria and flew to Miami. And so I just I picture the guy sitting in the seat next to her going, man, did you know your dress is slowly undulating back and forth? Because <laughs> these snails are huge. They're as big as your hand. And it's, it's a fertile field for exploring things in, in book form, too. So my first book, which I co-wrote with a co-worker named Matthew Waite, we did a big investigation about why Florida was still losing wetlands even though they're supposedly protected under the law. And that won some national awards and led to us writing this book called Paving Paradise, Florida's Vanishing Wetlands and the Failure of No Net Loss. And then the second book was Manatee Insanity, Inside the War Over Florida's Most Famous Endangered Species, which I got the name from somebody's t-shirt at a public hearing, by the way, because I went to this public hearing with 3,000 people that showed up to scream at the Fish and Wildlife Service about new rules for building docks that were supposed to limit how many new docks were being built in order to protect manatees. And this guy showed up with a t-shirt that said, stop the manatee insanity. And I thought, you know, that would make a good book title someday. So if you write a book and you need a title, look around at the (laughs) t-shirts. That's my wisdom of t-shirts. Yes. So that was the first two books. And they're both, you know, sort of environmental history with a little bit of this that came across. Uh, It was called The Sin of Scandal, Greed, Betrayal, and the World's Most Beautiful Orchid. This man named Michael Kovac 
went down to Peru and found what ended up being the most spectacular discovery in a century among orchids and brought it back through the Miami airport, smuggled it in, took it to Selby Botanical Gardens and to get it named after himself, which was tantamount to hanging a sign on his back saying, please come arrest me. Because sure enough, Peru sent a demand to the U.S. government saying we want our flower back. Armed federal agents raided Kovacs greenhouse and seized all 300 of his orchids, plus his proposal for a new TV show called The Orchid Hunter with Michael Kovac. Selby Gardens was bombarded with subpoenas. Scientists began to turn on each other. Selby itself wound up facing criminal charges. Uh, it just turned into a big mess. And this book, it's The Scent of Scandal. It's the only book I know of that's been classified as true crime slash gardening. And I always feel bad for the bookstore clerks trying to figure out which shelf it goes on. Not long after that came out, I was asked to do a blog for Slate Magazine about Florida, to write for about 30 days about what makes Florida different, what makes it special, what makes it the most, I contend, the most interesting state. As always, the problem wasn't finding enough to write about. The problem was finding a way to squeeze it all in because there's just so much. An agent in New York contacted me and said, we think 2016 would be a great year to have a book come out about Florida. And based on your blog, we think you're the guy to write it. And so he helped me prepare a book proposal and we sent it around. And 15 publishers said, no, we don't think people really want to read about Florida. And then one of them, St. Martin's Press, fortunately said yes. That led to O oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country, which got rave reviews in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, and wound up on the New York Times bestseller list for about a minute. Uh, well, hey, so, that's a minute more than most people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, mean, it means we can put that sticker on the paperback edition. Forever. New York Times bestseller. You know, that's so interesting to me, though, because I've heard that from other folks, too, about how publishers don't think people want to read about Florida, but they constantly want to read about Florida. It seems I don't yeah. understand the wisdom there, but I, I don't either. I mean, Lauren Groff puts out a book of short stories titled Florida and people eat it up. It's as if they just don't have a mindset that goes beyond the borders of New York. Sometimes I think, um, right. you know, if you present them with a book about New York, they'd be like, Oh yeah, everybody wants to read about New York. Well, maybe not. Right. Uh, you know, and, and honestly, a lot of people <laughs> from New York now live in Florida anyway. So Exactly. I mean, it's like Florida is a lot of people's end goal for retirement or whatever. So they're already right. kind of interested in the state, I think. But. Yeah. Or they have visited here or they know people who live here because, you know, we've got we actually have a larger population now than New York does. Two thirds of our population is from somewhere else. So, you know, odds are somebody picking up a book knows someone in Florida or has has been to Florida or goes there on a regular basis. So. Right. That's it, the percentage um, now, two-thirds two, of the Yes, ma'am. The only state with a larger percentage of non-natives, I believe, is Nevada. I would have almost thought that it was more than that, so that's good to know. Just think of all the kids being born. They they get counted, whether they stick around Oh, for long. yeah, we have to figure them in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All along, while I've been covering environmental issues for the, for the Times, I had been writing a lot of stories about panthers, about the efforts to save the Florida panther. It's our state animal, you know, and yet it very nearly went extinct. And every time I would write one of the stories, I would think this would make a great topic for a book. The plot was very twisty. Things happened that, you know, you wouldn't expect. The characters were fascinating, but there, I didn't have an ending. And you can't really write a book without an ending in mind. So then about three years ago, I finally got a, a good ending. I wouldn't call it a happy ending, but a hopeful ending. And so I sat down and started writing the, the book proposal. And that became Cattail, which a lot of people tell me is a very, they've enjoyed it as a quarantine read. 
you know, they, they, I think the hopeful ending helps a lot. I could see that without giving away the yeah. ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the hard part. People ask me about it. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to tell you what it is. I want you to come right. up on it organically. <laughs> They're like, yeah, but let's talk about it. <laughs> you can say this much. You can say that at one point there were about 20 Panthers left. And now there's more than 200. Mm-hmm. So they're doing better than they were. But read the book to find out why and, exactly. and why that's such a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I have a few questions about things that you were just talking about, but is there anything that yeah. you wanted to ask? Well, I thought your characters were fascinating and they were real life characters. And the ones that were good were very, very good. The politicians are the people that always let me down. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know why I let them let me down. But I don't want to get jaded. And then the females seem to be just as passionate or mo- yes. more so. It's not a, I didn't, you know, put flags on it. But one of the themes in the book is women in science and, and the, the difficulty they face in dealing with their male colleagues and male superiors and how often they're looked down on and not believed. And that was certainly the case here where uh, several of them, uh, Melanie Relke being yes. sort of the number one example, and Deborah Jansen too, were viewed with some suspicion by their colleagues and viewed as, we know more than you do, you know, how dare you speak up like this, so. I thought your characters just were really, from the beginning to the end, were fascinating. Someone we talked you. a lot about was McBride as a really yeah. compelling character. What was it like kind of speaking with him and and what was your process getting him to talk? Because it did seem he was very reticent. He is. He does not like to talk about himself. Uh, He doesn't like to talk, period, but he really doesn't like to talk about himself. I got very fortunate early on. I got word that he was going to be at at this conference at the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Research Institute, which is about five minutes away from where I was working. So I went over there specifically to see him and, if possible, talk to him in person. And he was exactly what I, he had been described as he, you know, he shows up, he's wearing this white Stetson. He wears it indoors. He wears it all through the conference. He never takes it off. And he gives this great PowerPoint where, you know, he's talking like this and he got this strong Texas twang, but he's saying all these really remarkable things. And so, and I think I described the scene afterwards where I went up to him and asked him about his pocket knife that showed up. In oh, all, right. Uh, yeah, all that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And I was, you know, a smart aleck. Like I just, I can't help myself. I, I end up doing that all the time. He talked a little bit and then he and Deborah Jansen was there. And so, uh, so were Chris, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. The, the guy who started the Panther program. Belden. Chris, Chris Belden. Thank you. Yes. And Daryl Land. So these four absolutely crucial characters are all there in the same room and they decide they're going to go to lunch together. And so I kind of invited myself along and hung out with them over lunch. And that was really great. It was a great experience and it enabled me to kind of get to know them a little bit better. But Roy was still reticent about talking. Although he, at one point he took my notebook and drew me a map of panther habitat and drew me uh, and then in the middle of it drew this big circle for this proposed development that was going to be right smack dab in the middle of it and i kept that map stuck up on my desk until the day i got laid off from the times in march just as a reminder that you know sometimes that's a great thing to ask people to do when you talk to them is show me just to say show me and so he you know he actually did that but the the thing that I find, the way I finally got him to talk to me at length was I said, look, Roy, I'm not trying to make you a hero, but you're a witness. You saw things that nobody else saw 
and you did things nobody else observed. And so if I can't hear from you about what happened, I'm not going to be telling the real story. And that finally got to him. He admitted that that was true. So then he said, okay, what do you want to know? We had this couple of long interviews over the phone at that point. And then I got into writing the book and got up to the chapter that called Hail Mary about where he makes this very important trip to Texas. And I realized Roy's never talked about that. He's never explained what that process was like about doing that and this this crucial thing to the story. So I called him up and asked him about it. And he said, oh, yeah, funny story. And then he tells me this hysterical tale about him and the blindfolded mule. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that just had me on the floor laughing. I mean, it's psychologically, it's kind of the low point in the story where you think, right. you know, Panthers are gone. And Roy's, and then Roy's got this great yarn. Yeah. And because uh, he's just, he, he really is a great storyteller. So I was glad I got him to open up. I really That's my favorite story in the book. It really is. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about the writing of the book, because I think what is really great about the book is how you balance history with science, with storytelling, which I think is really hard to do. So what is your kind of process with the research and how did it kind of get into these chapters? The process I usually follow when I'm writing a book is I'll sit down and outline, do like a rough outline at the very beginning and say, okay, you know, and I'll try and have like 18 or 19 points, you know, one for each chapter and say, okay, in this book, in this chapter, I'm going to say this, in this chapter, I'm going to say that. And then I'll go back and outline each chapter, you know, how each chapter is going to go and then sit down and just start writing it from the beginning like it's a series of, you know, 19 or 20 feature stories for a weekend edition of the paper, uh, which is something I've done, you know, for 30 or 40 years. So that's, and you look for a connected, some connective tissue so that you can make a transition from one chapter to the next. And that's something I've learned from reading. Uh, I read a lot of thrillers and of course, the, you know, they know how to keep your reading. And so I've kind of stolen some ideas from that about how to get people to, to keep going with the book, uh, keep eating the potato chips, as I like to think of it. I like the way you would bring up the president in. So you knew whatever president had an input there. Like being, the time period. Uh, the time period on. and all. I like that too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to hit people over the head with stuff, but if you can work it in subtly, that that works. The other thing I do when I before I start, even before I do the, the the outline, is I'll build a timeline to say, okay, you know, this happened here, this happened here, this happened here. For Panthers, I'd actually done a special report on Panthers, a sort of a two-story investigative package back in 2010, and I had built this big elaborate timeline. Then, not just for the Panthers, but I also built one for Dave Mayer and a separate one for Roy McBride about their lives. And so, so I could go into more detail about their particular experiences. That was really, really crucial to figure out the flow of the book is to say, okay, you know, on the same, you know, at the same time, this is happening, this is also happening, you know, and that kind of thing. Those are probably my two, my two tricks for writing nonfiction books is, you know, do those two things uh, right at the beginning. And that way you kind of, you have a roadmap to showing you which way you need to go with with your story for the next book i've got the timeline and i'm so i'm just now starting to do the do the outline of the chapters so mm -hmm. it's it, i couldn't do one without the other so i wanted to ask you a very specific question and you might not answer this one but that's okay 
In your acknowledgments, you were talking about your wife being your, your one of your readers and how she like pointed out a pun that you reader. had missed and how yes. she pointed, <laughs> which was that? <laughs> which pun was that? Um, <laughs> Do you remember? Was, I remember the pun. I'm trying to remember what it, it's an, it's an acronym. I think I know which one it is. <laughs> yeah, the acronym is, the acronym's PMS. That's I can't what remember I, what, what it stands for. That's yes. what I thought yes, it she was. She spotted that and said, I'm, she said, I'm so surprised you didn't make a joke about this. I'm like, holy cow, you're right. I should have. So <laughs> that was my guess because just because I thought like, oh, you know, that's not something that might be on your brain, right? Immediately as it might yeah. in other readers. So that's the one I thought. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was Panther something, something. I forget, But she said, well, I'm surprised you didn't say PMS. I'm like, I should have. <laughs> we have we have a very, uh, I'm not going to say we have this a similar sense of humor we have a very simpatico senses of humor on our third date we sat and, and watched a videotape of bugs bunny cartoons so oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. i've got to point out that i to me one of the most manly things a man can do is be devoted to his wife and the way you brought that in with, with mcbride and you brought yes. that in there with your with your wife to me that's yeah. manly McBride was I mean, her she, favorite character, so we're talking a little bit oh, about he's a, <laughs> Now that it's been quite a few years, what's up with the with the bad guy of the story that got by with lying and lying and lying? Well, I was going to say the two, probably the two people who were kind of the villains of the story, other than, you know, developers and, and so forth are the Fish and Wildlife Service guy, Sam Hamilton, who would not let his staff stand in the way of any development in panther habitat. And then Dave Mayer, the, the guy who used to be the champion of panthers and saving panther habitat, and then switched sides and was working to help the developers. Uh, both of them unfortunately died. Hamilton had a heart attack about a year after he became head of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And I think I mentioned in the book that Dave Mayer died in a plane crash in 2008. So I never got to sit down and do a long interview with him. So I, I had to really do a, it was a, a rancher in uh, central Florida. He was doing research on bears and he was doing radio telemetry readings, I believe, uh, you know, just like they do with the Panthers where they fly around getting the, the radio readings. He had put radio transmitters on bears in central florida to track them i'm not sure they ever completely figured out what had caused that i don't i don't remember if they figured out what if it was a mechanical or if it was pilot error but because dave died before i really started you know working on a lot of panther stuff i didn't get to do the big long interview with him that i really kind of needed to do so i ended up i had to read everything he wrote including his book i went through his personnel file from from the wildlife commission i read every interview he gave. And the thing that helped the most was a uh, college student who was working on his uh, post-secondary degree. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, had, had done a long interview with Dave. It wasn't a perfect interview by any means. He let him get away with without answering some questions, but it was helpful. He did have some, some good stuff in there. And the college student said, you can use three quotes <laughs> from, from, from this transcript. I was like, dang, okay, well, I guess I better choose wisely. So... <laughs> and I mean, not but, to speak but, like, I mean, that was... of, the, of the dead, but it seems like a lot of people got let him get away with not answering questions truthfully. And his story was probably one of the most frustrating ones to read. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, and I should say that that Dave still has a lot of fans, and they were not happy. They're not happy with the book, and they have let me know via social oh, wow. media. I understand their frustration with it, but I can't change the facts. I can't change what happened. I mean, you know, I don't know of another scientist who's had an entire science review team go through everything everything that scientist has written and say, "Yeah, you screwed up." <laughs> you know? <laughs> they got very angry with me for even reminding them of that because it's like, you know, when, when he died, all the obituaries were very glowing. Oh, Dave Mayer, this wonderful champion of Florida's environment. Eh, not so much, um, you know, and one guy actually asked me right before the book came out, is this going to be another, another hatchet job on Dave Mayer? Cause he didn't, I had written about Dave in the 2010 series and this guy was upset about me doing it then. And, I was like, well, I, I don't think it's a hatchet job. I present both the good and the bad because he really did save the Panther science program when he first took it over. But on the other hand, he really helped to get a lot of development built in Panther habitat that probably shouldn't have been built. So, oh, they did not want to hear well, that. When, when, to hear that. Well, you were writing the truth and yeah. I'd just stick to that. Yeah. Well, you know, you it's, as, uh, it as Jack Nicholson truth. once said, you can't handle the truth. Okay. <laughs> And some people, some uh, there was a lot of can. truth in there to handle. Yeah. Sure. yeah, it was, you know, very interesting. I had no clue that I would end up uh, being a champion of, of, of uh, Panthers, you know, and They're be on their Panthers. side. And yes, they, forget and they, they can about, use all the help they can get. <laughs> forget about them eating ducks and, you know, <laughs> and poodles and whatever. It brought back a lot of memories to me when you would uh, be talking about the countryside. You didn't dwell on the sun, a countryside, but you would bring it in, you know, somehow or the other. And I, being born and raised here, I remember those kind of things. And that was like, I, I was almost reading a high school uh, yearbook, kind of, mm -hmm. just brought back some good memories. When I was growing up, one of our big entertainments is Sunday drives. And my dad would love to take us after church and after doing the dishes, and we would go on a Sunday drive. And so some of that countryside just brought back that kind of memories, being in the car with my brother, my mom and dad, seeing some of this. You know, you'd say, there's a cow. Oh, there's another cow. Oh, look, another cow. <laughs> and it was so, cows, <laughs> cows could be very interesting if you didn't have a car yes. radio. <laughs> Well, I mean, Lord knows, uh, in, in O, Florida, I quoted a guy named Dexter Filkins, who's also a Florida native, saying that if you're a Florida native, if you grew up here, then you often feel like the, the boy in the sixth sense, because you see things that nobody else sees. You remember things, you know, that aren't there anymore. And it's, a, it's sort of an eerie experience sometimes, you know? <laughs> I kind of want to shift from the book to, you were talking about what you're working on and outlining now. So what, what project yeah. is that? My next book is actually just a collection of columns and stories that I've done over the years, and it's called uh, The State You're In, Florida Men, Florida Women, and Other Wildlife, and that'll come out next year. The next nonfiction book project I'm working on, I'm trying to do a proposal for, is uh, a book I'm calling The Snake That Swallowed Florida, uh, and it's about how pythons invaded the Everglades and how, that, how they've changed things. To me, it's a fascinating topic because the, these pythons are endangered in their native habitat, but over here they're thriving. As with the panthers, there's all kinds of fascinating characters involved, lots of twists and turns in the plot, some uh, government and private industry collusion that 
ended up being bad for Florida. I know you're shocked to hear that. And there's only been one book written on this topic, and it was written back in, I want to say, 2002. So been a lot that's changed since then. But that book has a great title. I, I envy the title, Snakes in the Grass, which is just a great, <laughs> just a great title. And, and one of the things I do a lot of times is I'll write a magazine story sort of as a prelude to doing the book, sort of as a way to think, think through some of the issues and get somebody else to pay for me doing some of my research yeah. and stuff like that. So I, did, I just did a big piece for Flamingo Magazine about the women who hunt pythons because there are quite a few that do that. And uh, I picked six of them and, and interviewed them. And they were all very interesting characters and, and with different backgrounds. The one who's actually caught the most pythons, male or female, is this 61-year-old ceramics teacher from South Florida. Ah. And I asked her what her secret was to catching so many snakes. She said, there's no secret. You just have to show up. You go out, she goes out almost every night looking for, looking for snakes. And that's why she's been so successful. And she drives around, she drives around on these levees in the Everglades in her SUV with huge bright lights on top and listens to audiobooks while she's driving around. She'll like, she says, I like to listen to historical fiction or books about the Everglades while I'm in the Everglades. So, I know. You know. I, <laughs> I wrote a piece about some python hunters in the Everglades a few years back. And what, something that reminds me of a, how it was like meditative for folks. And I'm over here being like yes. terrified to be out there. And they're like, no, this is a peaceful time for me. And I'm like, we live two different lives. We are... <laughs> <laughs> two different people i respect you i'm happy that you're here but i not me i can't do that yeah well, well i mean um one of the women uh, maybe the best known one is this woman named donna khalil she has been a lifelong collector of snakes she considers herself a uh, you know they call themselves herpers she considers herself mm. a herper and so for her this is a way to get paid to go out and do what she would do anyway which is collect snakes the difference being now she has to kill them and so she apologizes to each snake before she puts a bullet in its brain. Wow. And she's then, in the um, flamingo piece, right? Yes, yeah, she's in there. And she, unlike the, the, the scientists have told everybody, don't eat, don't eat the pythons. Their bodies are full of mercury mm -hmm. from pollution in the Everglades. Well, Donna didn't believe it. And so she got a mercury testing kit. And so she tests the snakes as she brings them in. And if they have a low enough level of mercury, then she she cooks them because she doesn't believe in killing anything you can't you can't eat she has experimented with recipes with with python eggs python meat she said uh, cooking them as uh, in a liver and onions recipe is particularly tasty so <laughs> there you go I, I, so they I've don't eaten, just taste like chicken <laughs> <laughs> i've eaten python ones because there was a How python was pizza down in, I think, Fort Myers, but they had shipped in the snakes from Vietnam because there were farms there yeah. that they could uh, yeah. eat it from. And it's pretty the other thing she, Yeah, well, the other thing she does is she makes her own python jerky and then eats the python jerky while she's hunting for python. Uh, <laughs> she's my kind of person. Honestly. Yeah. She's my kind of person. <laughs> I, can't, I can't promise you I'm going to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife's already said she's going to have a problem reading that one. <laughs> she hates, she hates the Adam and Eve thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned earlier, too, that you were working for the Times for a long time, and you're no longer working there, but you're freelancing yeah. or you're working for other publications. How has that changed your reporting and approach to your writing? 
I worked for the Times for 30 years, uh, 21 of them covering environmental issues. And then in March, mid-March, I got laid off, which was not a huge surprise. They had laid off several people the, the year before, including one editor who'd been there for 31 years. And I figured, well, if they got Roy, I mean, I'm, I'll probably be next. And mm. sure enough, it happened. And it was kind of funny. It was this, our, our second day of working from home because of the pandemic. And basically the message was, yeah, just stay there. <laughs> you're, you're good. Don't come in wow. uh, <laughs> anymore ever, uh, except to clean out your desk. But shortly after that, you know, God was watching out for me, I guess. And I was hired to do a weekly environmental uh, column for the Florida Phoenix, an online uh, news service based in Tallahassee. And then I, I freelance stuff on the side to the Washington Post, Politico, I mentioned Flamingo. I guess the way it has changed is that before working for the Times, I would spend the day working on stories at the Times office and dealing with whatever was going on on the beat. And so, you know, sometimes I'd have to write stuff immediately that, that very day. And sometimes it would be things I'd be working on for a long time, like the Panther series took me two years to, to pull together before it got published in 2010. And then I would work on the book stuff at night and on the weekends, usually. Uh, well, now it's all kind of jumbled together and I'll work on whatever's, uh, whatever's most pressing right in front of me uh, right away. So, and sometimes that means working through the weekend. So over the weekend, I started working on my next column for the Phoenix, which will be running uh, on Thursday, because I have to turn it in on Wednesday. So I've got, I have got that. I got a, a freelance piece that I started writing over the weekend, also. And then in the meantime, I'm also I'm doing a podcast too called Welcome to Florida. So I was trying to line up a guest for that, and we're going to talk about the skunk ape, by the way, uh, on the next <laughs> show. Um, Which is in cattail uh, makes an appearance. Yes. 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 Exactly. And we'll show up again, and we'll show up again, and I guess that's the one big overlapping character is the skunk ape because yes. a lot of the python hunters stay at the skunk ape research headquarter campground. <laughs> <laughs> You'd make a lot more money if you captured a skunk ape. <laughs> have you ever stayed at some of those campgrounds? I have not. When I went out with the python hunters in the magazine uh, story, I actually stayed at the Miccosukee ca Casino, which I'd never been to before. Oh. So that was that was pretty interesting. And I mean, it, and it was a great trip because on the way we stopped off at Corkscrew Swamp, and I finally got to see a, a ghost orchid, which I'd never seen before. It's uh, it's oh, this very oh, yes, rare. Yes type of orchid they have one called a super ghost orchid because it puts out five or six blooms at a time and they last through the summer and all the way into into the fall in some cases and you can see it it's about 100 feet off their boardwalk if you got binoculars or something you, you can see it clear as day so we stopped off in corkscrew swamp to see that and then on the way back we stopped off at the skunk Cape research headquarters just to confirm that what we'd heard was true that the a lot of the python hunters stayed there and sure enough it was true so with okay. a lot of the reporting especially for environmental stuff like it can be dust reported but you have to go out in the field a lot of the time yeah. so yeah. how has that ideally changed? right ideally you get to go out in the field <laughs> how has that changed though during covid i mean i i would love to go back out with some of the women i wrote about for flamingo and they, they have sort of standing invitations from several of them and i you know, I can't go, not until this, this thing kind of dies down because I, ha you know, I have a responsibility to my family to stay healthy. So I can't put myself in a position where that would change. I mean, the only way I could see going out on something, uh, on a story would be to, you know, if there was a way to do it safely to, to, I don't know, to go canoeing down a river or something like that, right. where everybody's 
in, in their own separate uh, vessel, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. It really hurts because Florida has this great award-winning state park system. We've got these great hiking trails all over the state, beautiful beaches, beaches that are considered world-class. And it's just, it's really not safe to go out there right now. So I'm having to do everything over the phone. I mean, the, the good thing is that in the 21 years I was covering the environment for the, for the times, I did go a lot of different places. So I know, I know what they're like just from my memory and, you know, I can write about them. So for instance, this week I'm writing a column about Apalachicola oysters and how the State Wildlife Commission is going to put them off limits for five years because the fishery has crashed so badly. That's what it's going to take to try and bring them back. I have very vivid memories of eating Apalachicola oysters in Apalachicola. <laughs> so, and and you know, and, and also I know how from prior stories, I know how important the oyster fishery is to the to the community. It's they've been you know they've been tonging oysters out of the bay there for a hundred years and now suddenly to say we're going to stop for five and the industry's supported this they're like you know this is what it's going to take to save the future of our town it's a it's a sign and i say this a lot to people and to me it's just blindingly obvious that in florida i think more than any other state the environment is the economy and if you screw up the environment you're going to screw up the economy we really saw that with the oil spill back in 2010 where it kind of shut down the economy of the of the Panhandle counties that end up ended up with oil on their beaches. We saw it even more so with the red tide that lasted for 16 months mm-hmm. uh, back in 2017, 2018, where it just it just killed the economies of all these towns that depended on tourism all along the coast. So you know you would think, given that, that government would pay a lot more attention to protecting the environment, and yet surprisingly they don't, because the Florida way is to only think about tomorrow and not anything beyond that. And it mostly is to think about how can I make a book today? What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I always like to say if the, if the people lead, the leaders will follow. So uh, <laughs> and we, certainly saw, we certainly saw that in the 70s where, you know, we had the first Earth Day protest and a tenth of the American population took to the streets to complain about pollution. And suddenly, voila, Congress is interested in environmental issues. Richard Nixon creates the EPA. They passed the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and a whole bunch of other environmental laws, including the Endangered Species Act. So if the people lead, the leaders will follow. You just have to get the leader's attention. That's the big thing. And sometimes you have to confront them in a bathroom if they are not wanting to talk to you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it, it cracks me up when uh, I sometimes get criticized from people who say, oh, you, you know, you're in the, you're in the pocket of Democrats and you know, you only complain about Republicans. Like, well, you know, I once followed Bob Graham into a men's room to ask him questions right. he didn't want to answer. So I feel pretty ideologically balanced here. <laughs> Are you doing anything that you always wanted to do, but you never had time to do? Yeah, well, sort of. Uh, I wrote a novel back in 2017. Oh, right. Yeah. Sort of as a challenge to myself. And uh, nobody wanted to publish it because <laughs> it was so awful. So I rewrote it. And, and oh, wow. so I'm, I'm finishing up the rewrite now. It's, it's much better. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping somebody will finally, you know, cast a friendly eye on it and say, eh, we published worse. Yeah, we'll take this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, it's a, it's a wacky Florida crime novel, but it's got a sort of a serious environmental message in it. I think and, last uh, time I saw you, you had mentioned that you're writing more fiction or you're, you're focusing on that. Well, I had written, I'd written three or four short stories that had gotten published, which just made me ecstatic. And then I wrote one that 
for submittal in the magazine that it wanted it said you know on second thought <laughs> so i haven't read any more since then but the the novel i really got into i really got invested in the characters who to me are really interesting one is a florida native who used to used to uh, have a sort of a shadowy job with the government as what he calls a creative problem solver okay and now, and now he's back in his hometown uh, renovating old houses for a living and then uh, he's framed for a murder he didn't commit of course. And he he teams up with with the local newspaper reporter who's there working in a, a one person bureau. So she's kind of the only reporter in town. And so they team up together to, to solve the crime, which also involves uh, the shooting of a dolphin, the most famous dolphin in Florida. Oh, wow. OK, yeah. I, I'm into it. I'm into yeah. That. And so the, the title is The Death of a Dolphin. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it starts off with the discovery of the dead dolphin and he takes it down to the 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 completely real marine mammal pathology laboratory in St. Petersburg, where they bring all the dead manatees and dead dolphins for examination, and they mm-hmm. do they open up the dolphin and discover a human thumb in its stomach. <laughs> <laughs> but there is there's a logical explanation for how it got there, and you find that out at the end of the book. So, <laughs> okay. so you mentioned your uh, podcast that you're starting. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that came about? And it's called Welcome to Florida, and my producer and co-host is a guy named Chad Scott, who is a radio guy from uh, Amelia Island, and contacted me because he had read Cattail and loved it. And he started following me on Twitter and saw the things I posted on Twitter and said, you know, I would love to get this guy onto a podcast to talk about what makes Florida special. So he contacted me, pitched the idea, and I said, Oh, all I have to do is show up on at the same time every week and talk. I can do that. He called, you know, I arranged the guests. He calls me up. We set it all up. We record it. And then it posts a week later. We've done shows on uh, alligators. Uh, we did a show on Florida's role in the civil rights movement, uh, where we got an interview with the woman who literally wrote the book about American Beach, uh, the only beach resort that allowed African-Americans in. Uh, in the 50s and 60s. She was a, she was hoot, by the way. We ended up gossiping about Zora Neale Hurston's second marriage. Nice. Uh, <laughs> where, where she was 48 and married a 23-year-old who later accused her of using voodoo on him. Wow. Um, Why not? Uh, <laughs> and then the last one, uh, well, the last one was we had Donna Khalil come on and talk about how she cooks her pythons <laughs> and, and how she catches them. And then the one we recorded last week, which is going to post uh, on Thursday, was on the villages. There was a guy who spent a month living in the villages and then wrote a book about the villages. It's called uh, Welcome to Leisureville. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen that book. We actually were talking about the villages the other day on our on our show because it's like, how can you not? Fascinating subject. Yeah. 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 And it it was, you know, it was making national news about a week ago. So so he was and, you know. We had intended to do like a 15, 20 minute interview with him and we ended up spending about 45 minutes with him because he, he had thought very deeply about the villages and why it is the way it is and, and that kind of thing. So it was, it was really interesting. So, and our goal is to just kind of educate people about Florida, about different aspects of life in Florida. And, and if we can, we try and offer a Floridian survival tip on each mm-hmm. episode. Like, you know, if you, if you step on a sand spur, lick your fingers before you try to remove it. You so have to. Into your fingers. You yeah. have to. Yeah. And people are like, you do? You really? That saved me many times. That's not just an old wives' tale. (laughs) No, it's not. It's scientific. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) It's scientific. But I mean, and a lot of it's just common sense. Like, you know, the best parking space is not the one closest to the store. It's the one that's in the shade. In the shade. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Floridian notices that. 
<laughs> That's too funny. So our goal, like I said, is to educate people about Florida. I mean, because we got 800, 900 new people moving in every day. So somebody's got to teach them this stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they got either got to learn it from us or learn it the hard way, right? So yeah, it's much easier to learn it from a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else that you want to touch on that you have coming up or anything like that? Um, you know, I would encourage people to check out the Florida Phoenix, uh, which is a, a feisty little publication run by experienced Florida journalists, and they do some excellent work and have some great columnists in uh, Lucy Morgan and Diane Roberts. Mm-hmm. Uh, look for my book, The State You're In, coming uh, next year from the University Press of Florida. Well, Craig, thank you so much for taking time to hang out with us today. It has sure. been a lot of fun. You were a delight to talk to. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you so much. I enjoyed doing it. You're you welcome. ask good questions. Make sure you make me sound like uh, James Earl Jones, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, put some auto-tune on my voice or whatever you have to do. Make me sound a little better, but you That's know. Right. This is CNN. There you go. Well, thank you so much. And, you know, hopefully you stay well and your family stays well and everything like that. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. See ya. Keep reading. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We will. That's one thing we will do. Well, that was our episode. We got to talk with Craig. I'm looking forward to his upcoming books. Um, I might even, when I can get to it, read some of his other books because I know what a very good author he is and he really immerses himself in what he is going to write. And it takes years sometimes of research and it's great then to see the payoff. And this is, you know, the state where I was born and raised and still live, so... I appreciate that other people feel have that passion about the state of Florida and the creatures in it and the people in it. The critters and the folks. The creatures and the characters. (laughs) All right. Well, we hope that you all stay safe and have a day full of sunshine. Uh, Use sunscreen. See ya. See ya. See ya.